Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stop in to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards Program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at FuelRewards.com. Welcome back to your favorite podcast ever. <laughs> I think that's overstating it a little. Nah. It's not even my favorite podcast ever. Okay, never mind. Jess is going to murder me in my sleep. She just looked so cranky. How are you guys? It's been a while. It's been such a hot second. How are we? What are we doing? What's going on in everybody's lives? As you can tell, Ellen is in the pod loft. I'm in the pod loft. We're recording like normal. Um, everything's in the chair. Everything's good again. Everything is right in everything the universe. Everything is fine. Everything is right in the world. Yes. Um, how's Hobart? Do we like it? Yes. Yes, it's cold. Does Jess like it? Not no. really. <laughs> <laughs> Jess is not a fan. When we get to Tasmania, Jess is going to have a nice long tirade about the people of Hobart, much like our tirades against Sydney and Melbourne. I don't really know much about people of Tasmania because I haven't and I can't make a judgment on the place because I haven't been there mm. whereas I have been to Sydney and Melbourne numerous times and we love it oh my god oh my love god it so much. I love Sydney I love it so much I don't yeah. know what I was talking about before it's the best place ever we need to let that meme die before we get murdered no nah, never it's okay. too funny sounds good Sounds good. Um, so you've got the reins tonight. I do have the reins. And we're talking about We're Ellen's talking about Jess's least favorite person and of Ellen's all time. Favorite person of all time. Ned Kelly. Mm-hmm. So roughly one trillion years ago when Jess and I started talking <laughs> about doing an Australian True Crime podcast, I said, Oh, we have to talk about Ned Kelly and just went, Do we? <laughs> and I was like, Well, yes, he's the most famous Australian criminal. And she was like, do we? <laughs> but do we though? And I was like, yes. And then as time went on and it became clear that I was serious about doing an Ed Kelly episode <laughs> and Jess was serious about me not doing an Ed Kelly episode. I mean, I had to do it. I had to do it. Just to smite me. Just to smite you down like God. Just to spite you. Smite. Smite, spite. Um, if I have a lisp in this episode, please don't bully me. I have <laughs> injured myself and I am slightly lisping. Ellen pulled a Hannibal Lecter and bit off a bit of her own tongue. Yeah. Gross. So, yes, I'm not putting on a lisp for fun and enjoyment. 
I'm in Great Plain and I'm still going to talk to you guys for an hour and a half about a long dead man. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So let's get into it, Ned Woo! Kelly. Um, this is a historical episode. If you don't like those ones, please stop listening. But it's going to be so good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. So let's begin straight away um, with the way so many Australian historical crime tales go with somebody being transported for animal theft. Uh, John Kelly was sent to Van Diemen's Land, a.k.a. Tasmania, in 1841 for the unforgivable crime of stealing two pigs, (gasps) the value of which totaled six pounds, which sounds like not much, but that is about $1,100 in today's money. Oh, John, whose nickname was Red, was sentenced to seven years. He was imprisoned in Tasmania, but was granted a ticket of leave in 1845 and then pardoned in 1848. He headed north across the Bass Strait into Victoria and began working as a splitter and fencer. He met Ellen Quinn in Donnybrook, Victoria. She was the daughter of a man named James Quinn, who was an Irish free settler that owned 640 acres of land. Ellen was a young 18 years old, 12 years younger than Red. And as we will hear later on this episode, she was an absolute force to be reckoned with. Like people think Ned Kelly is cool. Ellen Kelly was the sickest bitch of all time. She got married to Red in November of 1850. Um, She was already seven months pregnant by the time they got married. Just bucking those social norms because she was a woman ahead of her time. (laughs) Um, And after their marriage, they proceeded to do what Irish Catholics do best and have one million children. They had Mary Jane right after they were married, who sadly died. Also the way of Irish Catholics. Um, then Annie, then Margaret, then Ned, Dan, James, Kate, and Grace. Jesus, bloody Christ. Uh-huh. They got just every name out they there at once. They just slip out. <laughs> <laughs> by the walking out by that, by the time they got to Grace. And that was just the kids that Ellen had with Red. She had two husbands after Red. She had, I think, 12, between 12 and 15 children in Holy total. Holy shit. This is the sickest bitch. I love her. Seriously. She's a queen. So they lived um, on a fair slice of land in the township of Beveridge in Northeast Victoria. Beveridge? Beverage. Beverage. Yes. <laughs> B-E-V-E-R-I-D-G-E. Beverage. <laughs> the things you laugh about the most are never the jokes that I like craft. <laughs> okay, I'm going to crack on. Roll on. Roll on. <laughs> Jess is having a moment. So... Before we get into Ned Kelly's life and times, I wanted to talk a little about about what my English teachers in high school would call the socio-historic context. Hey, Ms. Shrav, what's up? What's up? Um, I didn't have her. I can't remember what my English teacher's name was. Anyway, moving on. So if you've listened to our episode on the Gaddon Murtis... Murtis? Murtis. Or if you know stuff and went to school, um, you would know that the Irish immigrants to Australia, be they free settlers or convicts, had a pretty rough go with the mostly English, mostly Protestant establishment. So there's conflict and tensions from the homeland were basically recreated on Australian soil. So the Irish Catholics would stick together and intermarry and tell the English to go fuck themselves and all those things. But the people who were like running the jails and the politicians and police officers and et cetera tended to be English. So this of course caused tension. And there was also a tension on top of that tension um, to do with land ownership. So by this point in Australian history, vast tracts of land were owned by squatters. Now in this context, we're not talking about like homeless people living in a warehouse. It's like these people who would come to the land, be like, I'm here, now I own this land. And without ever having bought anything or paid any titles, they basically just own land by virtue of them saying it. Righto. 
Um, so by this point in especially Victorian history, their squatters owned 90.9% of the workable land in Victoria. So when we talk about squatters, we're actually talking about an incredibly wealthy, like landed gentry, basically. Um, so over time, limits were kind of placed on the squatters, limiting the amount of land they were supposed to own. But these regulations were basically ignored by the squatters and not enforced by the police or any authority. So there was legislation, but the police were basically in the squatters' pockets. So nothing was ever done to actually limit land ownership. So... Um, we're at a stage where there's kind of like a lot of people coming into Victoria, not a lot of land that is able to be owned or worked. So people can't really make a lot of money. So in the 1860s, um, a number of colonies began to pass legislation that would allow something called selection. So under legislation in Victoria, this meant that people could buy half an allotment of land for one pound an acre. Then they would pay rent on the other half for a fixed term of seven years. And by the end of that seven years, if they'd improved the land and made money off it and could afford it, they could purchase the other half of the land and therefore they would own the title. So this included land that was owned in quotation marks by squatters and just other crown land basically. So this pissed off the squatters because they didn't want A, people taking up their land if it was their land or B, other people making money when they could be the ones making all the money. So there was a lot of like wheeling and dealing by squatters, a lot of like tension in between like the poor selectors and the incredibly rich squatters. So not 100%, but by and large, the squatters were English people um, who still kind of retained their links to England and everything like that. Um, but the selectors by and large were poorer, either people who were released convicts or people who had come over from Great Britain in search of a better life. So they weren't necessarily all Irish, but the particular part of Victoria where the Kellys lived did have a large Irish population. So a fair amount of the selectors were Irish. So that's like a very brief brush over of the kind of like tensions that are going on. You've got English Irish tension, you've got rich dicks who own everything and poor people who own nothing tension. So this is the kind of uh, landscape that Ned Kelly was growing up in. His mother comes from like a not poor family, but she basically gives up her life to marry Red. Um, they do own a bit of land, which they do work, but Red Kelly is a drinker and he spends a fair amount of time in jail. They lose their land and they end up living in what is essentially a shack uh, a little bit closer into town. So the Kelly children are raised with stories from Red about how the Irish are treated back in the homeland and about how the British officers treated the Irish convicts in Van Diemen's land. And they also would have grown up with stories of outlaw heroes, bush rangers who roamed Australia, stealing and killing and lived how they living how they like. Stories like these were printed a lot in the newspapers and although there was like a fair amount of pearl clutching about bush rangers and stuff like that, they were folk heroes. So this is the kind of person that Ned Kelly would have grown up admiring. So the Kelly children worked on their land basically all their lives, helping their parents with chores and things and they also spent a lot of time roaming around in the bush. Um, but both Red Kelly's extended family, many of whom he paid for passage to come over from Ireland, and Ellen Kelly's family are frequently in trouble with the law. So stealing cattle is the crime of choice. So <laughs> what you in for? I stole a cow. I stole a cow. Um, and I mean, it sounds like we laugh now. We're like, oh my God, you stole a horse. But it's like stealing a car. Yeah, that's, you know? you know. And if you're stealing a cow, you're stealing somebody's like property that they used to make money with. So it is a pretty serious crime. But, you know, to put it in context, these cattle are roaming on stations that are hundreds and hundreds of kilometres 
wide. So it's not it's not unusual for a cow or a horse or a sheep or whatever to wander onto somebody else's property. And if you're like, oh, I don't recognize that horse, but it's on my property and I'm not going to give it back. This cow looks like every other cow that exactly. I have. Exactly. So. Sheep look the same. I mean, horses and cows are branded, but all like one sheep. sheep look the same. All sheep look the same. <laughs> Nobody's going to know if, if somebody has 8 million sheep and you nick two of them, like they're not going to be like, where are my two favorite sheep? <laughs> You're not going to know. Billy, where are they? Exactly. So I'm not saying that like everybody stole cattle, but like people stole cattle fairly frequently. And it was kind of the way of things that look, if you are a wealthier person and somebody's cow wanders into your property and you keep it, you're probably not going to get in trouble. But if you're a poor Irish selector, you are going to get the police on you nine times out of 10. Mm. So um, Ellen's brother, Jimmy, is charged with possession of stolen cattle when Ned is one year old. Um, this is just the first time in Ned's life that he's been arrested for this crime. He'll be arrested for it several more times in the future. Ned will actually provide an alibi for him when Ned is eight years old on another charge of cattle stealing. Um, so not the hugest amount is known about Ned's kind of like childhood life. Um, he does like go to school. Uh, he is a family move around a fair bit. They move to a place named Avenel where Red manages to grab 40 acres of land, which they end up working for a time. One thing that is very notable that happened in Ned Kelly's childhood was that he was awarded, he was given an award for heroism because he saved a little boy from drowning in a creek. So they gave little Ned Kelly, who was 10 years old at this time, like this green sash to like reward him for being a hero. And he wore it around everywhere. And he was like, see this sash? I got this because I'm a hero. I am a hero. And everybody's like, okay, Ned, go steal a cow or something. (laughs) The glitter in your eyes. I just think it's really sweet. (laughs) They gave him a little sash. I doubt you would think it was this sweet if it was any other person other than Ned Kelly. Can I just put that out there? I'm putting it out there. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) moving on with this very serious episode. Um, So Red is doing his best to provide for his family, but he is a drunk and a convict and he hasn't quite managed to break the old ways. So Red is sentenced to six months hard labor on a charge of illegally possessing a cow hide from a calf that he stole, but they couldn't prove that he stole it because he killed the calf and skinned it. Um, So they just got on, on having the stolen hide. And Ned, at this time in his life, at 10 years old, is forced to become man of the house. Oh. So when Red comes home, oh, is that sympathy? Baby Ned. Baby Ned. Wearing his little stash. So when Red comes home from prison, he's bas- he's not in any shape to take his responsibilities back over and he falls, still- falls deeper into alcoholism. He dies in 1866, leaving behind his wife to provide for their seven living children. Ned, of course, is there to help her and he forms a very strong bond with his mother. Ellen, as I said before, was hard as nails and she could handle being a widow, but her youngest child was only one years old. So life, which was already pretty bloody tough, was about to get significantly tougher for the Kellys. Um, Zane, the podcast producer, who played Ellen in Benedict Braxton Smith's Kelly musical? Dana Casal, friend of the podcast. What a stunner. What a stunner. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Benedict Braxton Smith's a Brisbane composer. He did a, He wrote a musical about Ned Kelly. I would have loved it if I'd known. Um, right, where was I? Okay, so uh, Ellen was actually arrested a little while after Red died on a charge of assault after oh. she got into a biff with Red's sister Anne. 
And clearly she won the fight as she was found guilty and fined two pounds. Of course she did. She was charged a few months after that uh, with abusive and threatening language um, against Anne's landlord. So clearly they patched up. She was living with Anne at the time. They had a tiff. She was fighting two pounds. She's back friends with Anne, tells Anne's landlord to go fuck off, I guess. Um, And Ellen's like, uh, no, and she countersues the landlord for assault. (laughs) So my point is here, uh, everybody in Ned's family was constantly being charged with shit. um, And two, Ellen Kelly is a badass. So (laughs) she's fined 40 shillings, which is roughly 40 shillings more than she has. So after scraping together what she can, the family are forced to move once again to a cheaper area, this time up north to the tiny town of Greta in northeastern Victoria. She goes there to be closer to her sisters, Kate and Jane, who both live in Greta. So Kate and Jane Quinn married two brothers, Jack and Tom Lloyd. And Jack and Tom at this point in time are serving five years in Beechworth prison for cattle stealing. Um, so five years for a crime like cattle stealing is an incredibly long sentence. So the Kellys and Lloyds are feeling pretty damn persecuted by the police. Um, I just wrote something that was not English in this next (laughs) sentence. So I'm going to skip on over that. Um, something else that was kind of happening with the squatters at this point in time was that, so as I said, you know, cow wanders onto your property, you, maybe you keep it, maybe you give it back if you're a good Samaritan, whatever. But what the squatters, the squatters actually had a system with the police where they would pay police every time they successfully got somebody for cattle stealing. So it's not like, you know, cattle stealing is not a crime that you get like the Victorian Supreme Court up in arms about and ever there's 500 witnesses and stuff like that. It's just one squatter being like, he stole my cow. And the poor person being like, no, I didn't steal your cow. And the, the judge goes, he stole the cow five years in prison. So obviously it's that's only, it. <laughs> that's it. That's the whole thing. Nobody fact check that. Um, it's not that hard for the squatters to be like, hey, arrest this guy for cattle stealing. I'll give you a hundred pounds or whatever. Probably not that much, more like one pound probably. So there's a fair amount of police corruption at this time. So it's not, when we say that like, oh, Jack and Tom Lloyd, like, oh, they committed a crime and everything like that. But I'm not saying they didn't steal cattle, but I'm just saying that it's not really that possible when the police have a financial incentive to arrest somebody for cattle stealing. Nobody really knows what the truth is. So yeah, the Kellys, including and especially Ned, definitely participate in a bit of cattle stealing and in particular horse borrowing, which they called it. So Ned was accused of stealing a horse and an article was written in the paper about him with his description only a week after he arrived in Greta. Ellen Kelly uh, eventually purchases election and the Kellys live there in a five bedroom hut with Hessian curtains for walls. Uh, And Ellen makes a few extra shillings on the side by letting people lodge in the hut and also by selling alcohol on the sly because she is a legend. She's a fucking legend. She's a legend, mate. (laughs) So when Ned is around 14 or 15 years old, having been man of the house for several years now and in participating in his share in horse thefts and the like, he becomes the apprentice, for want of a better word, to a bush ranger named Harry Power. Now, Harry Power was a former convict transported to Australia for seven years for stealing a pair of shoes. So obviously the most hardened felon you could possibly imagine. He was a convicted horse thief, had spent a fair amount of time, fair amount of time in jail for wounding a police officer, and he had recently escaped from Pentridge Prison. Oof. 
he had befriended Tom and Jake, Jack Lloyd while they were in prison, which basically inspired him to head up to Northeast Victoria and hide out there in the thick bushland while he was on the run. So Ned, who had been working himself to the bone trying to help his mother cultivate their selection, is keen also to make a few extra bucks on the side for his family. And he and Power begin this little horse stealing operation. So during their time as mentor and mentee, Power teaches Ned a lot of the skills one needs to be a proper bushranger and thief. Wear a jacket. Wear your boots. Yes. Ride a horse. <laughs> Steal the horse. <laughs> Don't get caught for stealing the horse. Drink some booze. Yes, very important. That's step one. <laughs> step one, get plastered. Step two, steal a horse. And good night. And good night. You are now a bush ranger. So in 1869, we uh, Ned is accused of assaulting a Chinese man who is called... Nobody laugh when I say this. He's called Afuk. Aww. It's not his real name, obviously. It's a racist nickname that the white people would have given him. So mean. It's so mean. Um, Australian, white Australians, not great to the Chinese who had come in during the gold rush. There was a lot of tensions there. That's for a separate episode, though. We don't have time to delve into all of that. So, yes, he was arrested for assaulting this Chinese man. So the story from Fook's point of view was that he was passing the Kelly place when three men approached him and one of the men said to Fook, I'm a bushranger, give up your money or I will beat you to death. Um, Fook was taken aside, robbed of 10 shillings and beaten with a stick. He went into town sometime later to make a complaint to a Sergeant Whelan. So some months prior, Whelan had arrested one of Ned's brothers-in-law on a charge of possessing stolen mutton and hides. And Ned in that trial had given, in Sergeant Whelan's opinion, false testimony in this guy's defence. And Whelan was pretty eager to find a reason to bring Ned Kelly to some kind of justice. So this guy Fu goes in, gives his complaint. Whelan's like, I know a bush ranger. His name's Ned Kelly. I'm going to go arrest him for this crime. So the Kelly version of events was that Afu could come across Annie, who is Ned's sister, and asked her for some water. Annie acquiesces and fills Fuchs' billy can with water, which he drinks and then spits out and accuses her of giving him creek water rather than rainwater from the tank. He yells abuse at Annie and Ned, overhearing this, comes out and tells Fuchs to clear out and he roughs Fuchs up a little when Fuchs refuses to leave. Ned has Annie and two other men as witnesses to this account and the judge finds him not guilty of the assault. But the newspaper reports anyway on the juvenile bushranger Ned Kelly and expresses disbelief that he was acquitted of the charge. Sergeant Whelan is fuming um, and the brush with justice doesn't seem to make Ned straighten out any and he continues with his life basically the same as working the selection and bushrangering with power and of course indulging in some light horse theft. Just some light horse theft. Just some casual on the side, you know. Just a, I'm just a horse theft hobbyist, really, you know. It's just my side gig, my side hustle. So in 1870, Harry Power makes a fairly major misstep when he holds up a squatter and demands money from him on the squatter's own land. He ends up stealing the guy's watch. So this guy, the squatter, Robert McBean, what? steals his watch. The guy's like, I don't have any money, but I have a watch. Power's like, watch will do. Um, so the squatter, a man named Robert McBean, does his best to bring the full force of the law down on power and a 500 pound reward for information as to power's whereabouts is set up. So basically a manhunt now begins. So the young man who is in power's company at the time of the robbery is not confirmed, but is basically assumed by everybody to be Ned Kelly. Four policemen, including Sergeant Whelan, roll up to the Kelly homestead and lie in wait. They see two horses outside and assume that power is inside with Ned. 
When morning comes and it becomes apparent that Ned is alone in the homestead, he is arrested and taken to Benalla Lockup, where he's charged for his role in the robbery. Meanwhile, Power is still on the run, doing as a bush ranger does, holding people left, right, and center, living in the bush, whatever. Um, so Ned Kelly is tried for the robbery, but witnesses are unable to positively identify him as Power's associate, and he's found not guilty. Power is eventually found and arrested, hiding out near Ned Kelly's grandfather's station. So this makes people believe that Ned Kelly had given power up, which Ned is insulted by and resolutely denies. The real informant was Jack Lloyd, Ned's uncle, who had undertaken an agreement with Robert McBean and the police in pursuit of the 500 pound reward. So the police ended up catching power while he slept in the bush. He was arrested and taken back to Melbourne to face justice for both the robbery and also from escaping from prison. So after this episode, Ned does cop a bit of flack from the locals as they believe that he was the one that sold power out. So Ned is kind of feeling like a black snake, but also at the same time, people kind of consider Ned Kelly to be a badass. Like he's still a teenager at this point of view. He's getting written about in the papers. Everybody calls him power's mate. Like he's a little bush ranger and everything like that. (laughs) So on one hand, you have people being like that, Ned Kelly, he sold out Harry Power. What a snake. On the other hand, people are like, this kid's sick. <laughs> You're such a nerd about this shit. It's interesting. It's an interesting slice of Australiana. This kid is sick. <laughs> Look, I could tell you what they wrote about him in the papers, but this That's kid is gist. sick is the gist. Right. We're all about the gist here. We're not about specifics. We're about the gist. So up until this Same, point, can we get that on a shirt. We're all we're about the a, gist here. We're not about the specifics. We're we're all about the gist. I think that's stunning. I'd wear that. Would you? Yeah, I would too. So up until this point, we're still in 1870. Ned has managed to escape any real trouble from the law. So the exploit that ends up landing him in prison is a bit of a weird one. So there's this guy, right, named Ben Gould. <laughs> He's a former convict from Tasmania, shout out, and he's like <laughs> he's like a he's a hawker, he's a traveling salesman. So he's in Greta selling his wares and what have you, and there's this couple, Jeremiah and Catherine McCormick. They are also ex-convicts and they are also hawkers, also in the Greta area. So one morning, Ben Gould uh, notices the McCormick's horse run wandering around and calls on Jim Kelly to rope the horse and return it to the McCormick's. Um, Ben Gould is uh, staying at the Kellys in the point of view, which is why Jim Kelly was around to do this task. So Jim Kelly does so. And later on in the day, the McCormick's roll around to the Kelly house and accuse Ben Gould of stealing their horse. Ned Kelly comes out and defends Gould. And then the McCormick's round on Ned and accuse him of orchestrating the theft. It turns into a bit of a blue with Ned forcefully defending forcefully in sarcastic quotation marks defending Gould and informing the McCormick's that Ben was just trying to wrestle your horse wasn't trying to steal it it was sitting on our land we're gonna give it back to you I know we're horse thieves but come on (laughs) we're not gonna steal your horse we Um, only steal horses from people we don't like we only steal horses from rich people and you're poor so we're not gonna steal your horse um so the McCormicks, understandably, don't believe Ned and they let him know it. They're like, you were a horse thief and a scoundrel and they hightail it back to Greta. Well, neither the Kellys nor Ben Gould much feel like letting that accusation stand. So they retaliate in a weird way. So the McCormicks are childless, right? So they're a married couple. They've been childless for a while. 
And um, the Kellys, being selectors, they have some farm animals. They had been in the process of uh, castrating some of their calves. Jess's face when I said castrating just now. Not joyous. I don't like that word. So Ben Gould and Ned get this idea to gift the McCormicks a pair of calf testicles with a message for Mrs. McCormick that she might find those testicles a bit more useful than her husband's. Lol. <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> what <Sick> a burn. <laughs> <laughs> so Ned rolls up to where the McCormicks are camped, but he can't see them immediately. So he gives the parcel to his cousin Tom Lloyd to give to Mrs. McCormack. Well, Tom gives it to Mr. McCormack, and let's just say he was not appreciative of Ned's helpful suggestion. (laughs) The McCormacks head back to where Ned is to return fire, and Ned holds his ground and tells him that reinforces the fact that neither he nor Gould stole their horse. Mr. McCormack is like, bullshit, I'm going to beat you, and Ned Kelly is like, come Come try it. (laughs) Um, Even though Ned is like 15 and McCormack is like an adult man. So... Ned's version of events after this is that uh, Ned went to dismount from his horse. Mrs. McCormack struck Ned's horse with a whip. It jumped forward and Ned's fist just came into contact with Mr. McCormack's nose, causing him to fall back on his ass. I call that bullshit. I mean, look, who hasn't been there? (laughs) Sometimes, you know, you're just trying to dismount your horse to beat somebody and then your horse just... Just accidentally Just accidentally cause you to beat that guy. So he dismounts. He's up for a fight with McCormack, but the McCormack's like, I assume, like holding his nose bleeding, basically run away. They make a complaint. The police come around. The copper is like, what the fuck happened? Ned explains the horse stealing accusation and he says that he didn't do it and he was simply defending himself against the false accusation. He says to the cop, I hit him, referring to McCormick, obviously, and I will do the same to you if you challenge me. (laughs) The police officer is like, I'm a police officer. Um... So Ned is arrested and charged with violent assault and indecent behavior. He is tried and there's a little bit of illegal back and forth, whatever. We're going to crack on with it. He uh, is sentenced to six months hard labor in Beechworth Jail. So roughly six months later, he is released. Uh, We're in March of 1871. Ned is the ripe old age of 16 and he is under bond to keep the peace. So condition of his release, you cannot fuck shit up, Ned Kelly. And he's like, I swear. Uh, But peace and Ned Kelly do not go hand in hand. Our next incident, what happens is the horse of a postmaster from the neighboring town has gone missing. And the let's horse, go to our local horse thieves, shall we? Yes, let's, let's just take a look at our friendly neighborhood horse thieves. So the horse is a particularly fine chestnut mare. <gasps> oh, Yes, it was every single time they were like, oh, it was a very fine mare. I'm like, well, when there's a fine mare about, you just can't stop yourself, <laughs> can't you? She's just begging to be stolen. <laughs> So not long after Ned returns home from jail, a man by the name of Isaiah Wild Wright comes to visit the Kellys, most specifically his mate Alex Gunn, who is married to Annie Kelly. Uh, Wild Wright comes to visit riding a particularly fine chestnut mare. So Wild Wright is a horsebreaker and a troublemaker who loves a bar fight and a little bit of trouble. It sounds like the start of a country song. He was a horsebreaker. Horsebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> Get your friend Carrie Underwood to write a song about that. She oh, my gal. Shout out. Fr- friend of the podcast, <laughs> Carrie Underwood. He was a horse. Friend of my heart, Carrie Underwood. Um, so he has a reputation for being, and I quote, as mad as a tiger snake that has been run over by a mob of sheep. 
<laughs> I'm sure we all know how mad that is. He's a tough bastard and nobody wants to cross him, but he gets on well with the Kellys and with Alex Gunn and he stays over the night. They presumably have a few drinks and a good time. When Wild wakes up the next morning, he finds his fine chestnut man missing. Mm. Wild takes Ned with him while they wander around Greta trying to find the horse in question. They don't find it and Wild heads back to Mansfield, borrowing one of the Kellys horses and saying like, hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to this horse. You hold on to the chestnut mare and then eventually we'll swap when you find it. Um, as luck would have it, the horse is found by Alex Gunn and brought back to the Kelly's house. Great. Wild has his horse back. Not great. Um, it's obviously not Wild's horse. It is obviously the postmaster's horse and Wild has stolen it. So Ned, not knowing that the horse is stolen, Ned not knowing that the horse is stolen, hangs on for a few days. He parades about town on his fine chestnut mare. He goes to Wangaratta and gets drunk because like, look at my horse. How fine is it? Comes back. He's riding the horse. Then he's like, okay, I've had my fun. I'm going to take it back to Mansfield to give it back to Wild. Unfortunately for Ned, somebody who sees him parading about on the horse is a police officer, a senior constable named Edward Hall, who is aware of a stolen horse that matches that horse's description. When Ned goes off to Mansfield to return Wild's horse, the officer stops him quite pleasantly and says, Hello, Ned, my friend. I need you to come and sign some bail bonds from your recent release from prison. Care to follow me to the police barracks to sign them? This is not a setup. Ned reluctantly agrees, and to the surprise of nobody, when Ned gets to the police barracks, he is immediately arrested for horse stealing. Ned is like, fuck that, you'll never catch me alive, runs off after the horse, which is bolted in the commotion. Uh, Constable Hall yells after him, stop or I'll shoot. And Ned yells back, shoot and be damned. And the constable's like, okay. So he shoots after him, but the gun misfires. So Hall is like taking up running after him, trying to shoot him. Gun's not working. When he reaches Ned, Ned grabs him by the collar and throws him into the dirt. He picks Hall up and chucks him back into the ground a number of times before straddling him and kicking the spurs of his boots into the officer's thighs. Yikes. Hall calls for help and a crowd forms trying to come to Hall's assistance. Ned is like, Ned later on was like, I was going to bash these people, but and I quote, I dare not strike any of them as I was bound to keep the peace or I could have spread those curves like dung in a paddock. So he's like, I'm going to bash this police officer. That's fine. That doesn't break my bond to keep the peace. But if I assault all the bystanders as well, well then, you know, can't do that. As it is, Ned starts easing him up a little. Uh, Constable Hall gets his own back and strikes Ned in the head five times with a pistol. So they brawl a little bit more. Ned is bleeding profusely from the head and it takes a matter of time before Hall and the seven people that have come to help manage to subdue Ned and pull him back to the police barracks. Um, when Ellen Kelly and Wild Wright arrive at the barracks to see Ned, a few of Ned's friends and supportive had started a minor riot in front of the barracks demanding Ned's release. Ned is fully arrested. Um, a bunch of cops fully. come fully arrested this time. A um, bunch of, for like assaulting a police officer, not just riding a stolen horse. Um, a bunch of cops down, come down from Wangaratta to deal with the hoopla and Ned is taken to court again. At this point in time, he's been out of jail and his other charge for one month. So he has a committal hearing. He's charged with horse stealing and receiving. All the police give evidence. Horse um, receiving? Yeah, so like receiving stolen goods. Right. Um, some of these old timey crimes are so funny. But yes, horse receiving is a crime. Um, so cops give evidence. The people that saw Ned riding around town on the fancy horse give evidence. But Wild Wright, the actual horse 
horse thief does not give evidence for reasons that I'm sure we can all understand. Um, and Ned wasn't going to give Wilde up because he was still copping flack from people who thought he dobbed on Harry Power. So he's committed to stand trial and is sent back to Beechworth Jail. So in August of 1871, uh, he is found guilty of feloniously receiving a horse. He was sentenced to three years hard labor. Interestingly, the law finally caught up with Wild Wright and he was arrested in May of 1871 for horse stealing, which he is found innocent of, but he is found guilty of the charge of illegally using a horse, which he is given 18 months sentencing for. So illegally using a horse is a like more severe crime than feloniously receiving a horse somehow. I don't fucking know. Um, but Ned is given the much harsher sentence. So he's given three years hard labor when Wild Ride is only given 18 months when Wild was charged with a more severe crime. Interpret that how you will, people who hate Ned Kelly. Um, so they put him away. He's transferred to Pentridge Prison in to work in the quarries and then he spends some time on a prison ship in Port Phillip Bay where the prisoners are taken ashore to work building seawalls and other hard labory kind of tasks. So it's a rough three years for Ned Kelly and when he was tough, while he was tough before he went into prison, he's a lot tougher coming back out. So he's released from prison in February of 1874. So if Ned didn't hate the police enough, he would be given sufficient reason to after he was released from prison. So while he was incarcerated, his beloved older sister Annie had died after complications during childbirth in 1872. A married police officer named Constable Flood had seduced and impregnated Annie, who was alone since her husband Alex Gunn was in prison with Ned on horse stealing charges. Once Annie began to show, the officer had cut off all contact with her and she was left alone. The baby was born healthy but later died of diphtheria. Ned carried a bit of a vendetta for this constable flood for the rest of his life. He was determined that this person would pay for essentially killing his sister. His younger brother, Jim, also had been imprisoned in Ned's absence, which his family didn't tell him. So when they would come to visit him in prison, Ned would be like, where's Jim and the other 800 children? And they'd be like, oh, Jim is uh, busy. But he was actually, um, in, he was given a five-year sentence at just 14 years of age for selling and stealing cattle, which was a huge sentence given the crime. So the person who actually received the stolen goods from Jim Kelly was a wealthy squatter and he'd not been charged of any crime. So Ned Kelly was given three years in prison for receiving a stolen horse. This person who received all the cattle from Jim Kelly, nothing happened to him. So the injustice was still kind of burning inside Ned, but at this stage of his life, he was determined to try and earn an honest living. He spent a period of time working at a sawmill and he does pretty well at it, um, being pretty used to hard work after his time doing hard labor in prison. But he is determined to settle one old score. Wild Wright is out of prison and he's back in the area. He is married to one of Ned's cousins and is basically a part of the family, but Ned still did three years in prison for a crime that Wilde committed, so he's got to even the score. He spies Wilde drinking at a bar one night and decides to give him a piece of his mind. As I said before, Wilde is crazy as a cut snake and nobody wants to cross him. So they start this argument and it's getting so heated that the owner of the pub is like, hello, gentlemen, would you care to use my boxing ring that I have in the back of the pub? Ned and Wilde are like, literally, yes, we are going to do it. They like strip down into like boxing clothes and they do a 20 round boxing match. So as I said, Wilde is a savage. He's never lost a fight ever until now. Ned Kelly fucks him up big time. 
Um, they're like pretty evenly matched for the first like three quarters. But as it goes on, it's clear that Wild is coming up slower and slower every time. And eventually he's like, uh, ring the bell. I'm done. Ellen likes wrestling, by the way, everyone. So <laughs> listening to her talk about this and watching her. Boxing is for pussies. Boxing is not wrestling. <laughs> I would not watch. Wrestling is not real. It's real in our hearts. <laughs> So eventually Wilde stops getting up and the fight is over. He will later say that Ned gave him the hiding of his life and in the way, the confusing way of men, in beating the shit out of him, Ned Kelly has now gained Wilde's undying respect and loyalty. Okay. Um, And it also is a big boon for Ned Kelly's reputation. Now he's like a apprentice bushranger. He's been to prison. He'll fuck you up. He beat Wilde right in a fucking fight. Like he is, he's the toughest bastard on the block. So he's still trying to go straight at this time in his life. He spends a bit of time traveling around and working in the northeast of Victoria and the Riverina area of New South Wales. So drought and an economic downturn mean that good, honest work is hard to find. So Ned does what he can, building railways for the government, working in sawmills, shearing, you name it. Um, He gets in a few fights and a bit of minor league trouble, mostly from drunks who want to have a go at the man who beat Wild Wright in a fight. So Ned's reputation still is kind of following him wherever he goes, no matter how straight he tries to be. Wherever there's trouble, Ned Kelly's name comes up as the culprit, regardless of whether or not he actually committed the crime. And it doesn't help that members of his family back home, including his mother Ellen, are constantly getting on the wrong side of the law. It's probably no surprise that after a few years of straight shooting, Ned falls back into old habits. We are up now to 1877. So the past couple of years have been difficult financially as drought conditions and poor gold yields mean that work in many industries are drying up. Squatters have been using interesting techniques to avoid losing their land to selectors. This legislation has been in place for a while now. So it's coming to the point where like a lot of people, seven years are up and like the land is going to go back to the squatters if it hasn't been cultivated. So what they would do is like, pay people that they know to like be selectors, select their land and then fail to cultivate it, which means that the title goes back to the squatters. Um, Cattle thefts are on the rise and many young men are forced to operate on the opposite side of the law to get by. The Kelly family, rightly or wrongly, are considered suspect number one for every cattle theft going. Tensions between the police, who are mostly English and Irish-born sons of various rich people, and the natives, i.e. white Australians who were born in Australia, are escalating. So then comes the forming of the Greta mob. So this basically consisted of a handful of Kellys and Lloyds and other Greta locals, including Stephen Hart, Aaron Sherritt and Joe Byrne. Remember those names. They will be important later. Um, And these people are like constantly getting in trouble with the police. Ned Kelly is, of course, at the heart of the mob and it's de facto leader. Joe Byrne is a smart is a smart guy. Um, he likes to read and write. Fun fact about Joe, that's on his Tinder profile. Um, he's a good fighter and an excellent shot. He is an Irish Catholic but native born just like Ned. Joe and Ned get on like a house on fire and it's not long before Joe essentially becomes Ned's right-hand man. So while the main beef is, of course, with the police, the Greta mob also have issues with the squatters. So the squatters in Greta have issued a writ that due to all this cattle stealing going on, if any loose cattle are found on squatters' land, they'll be impounded. This enrages Ned. In his view, the squatters are not just content with simply owning every inch of land in Greta and surrounds. They want every animal too. And to punish any poor selector who dare let his cattle accidentally wander into a squatter's land. 
The squatters are also still offering cash rewards to police officers who make arrests for cattle stealing. Worse still, one of the squatters, a man by the name of James Whitty, is putting it about town that Ned stole one of Whitty's prize bulls. As we've seen, Ned will steal cattle until the cows come home. Oh! Boy, did I think was, I was smart when I wrote that one down. I was like, man, this is it. This is, this is the joke that's going to change your life. But as we've seen, Ned doesn't really like being accused of crimes he hasn't actually committed. So he confronts Witty one day at the races and asks him why he has accused him of stealing the bull. Witty backtrates and is like, oh, oh, mate, mate, mate. The bull's been found. Don't stress. But I did hear that you had sold said bull to another man, which is why I was telling people about it. Well, Ned knows he's bullshitting. Another fantastic joke that just didn't look at. Um, and the accusation that he did steal the bull stings. Not long after this happened, um, Witty has 15 horses impounded for grazing on his land. Two of the horses belong to Ned and his cousin Tom Lloyd. They are told that they have to pay a fine to have the horses released to them. But paying fines is not the Kelly way. So instead, Ned and Tom break into the pound where the horses are held and steal their horses back, but only their two horses. So, of course, Woody knows who stole the horses, but he can't prove it. And the message is received loud and clear. Don't fuck with Ned Kelly. From then on, Ned's like, in for a penny, in for a pound. People think I'm going to steal on everybody's cattle. I may as well be making some fucking money off it. And he, Tom Lloyd, and other members of the Greta mob start a fun new enterprise. So the mob would start stealing horses from squatters all over the area. So what they would do is they would take the horses and change the brand so the horses couldn't be identified. They would then take the horses to an area far away from where they were stolen and ask one of the squatters there if he wouldn't mind if they could briefly put their horses in their stockyard as they have a buyer on the way to purchase them. Then one of the mob would pose as a wealthy squatter and come and purchase the horses with the actual squatter as a witness And then that squatter would be involved in drawing up the bill of sale and rebranding the horses. Therefore, the horses would have fresh branding, legitimate paperwork, and a witness to attest to the fact that the horses were legitimately sold. Then the mob would ride off again and sell the horses in a different town before repeating the process all over again. So they would raid properties and stations all over the northeast, down to Melbourne, and even up into New South Wales. So this is horse stealing on like an industrial scale. So it's not long before the police cotton onto some kind of racket. So squatters are crying to the police at every opportunity that all their horses are going missing. And the rates of horse stealing in the northeast of Victoria are three times higher than anywhere else in the rest of the colonies. (laughs) So additional police forces are dispatched to certain towns in the region, including in Greta. The inspecting superintendent of the Victorian police, Charles Nicholson, is frankly appalled at what he considers to be the lackluster police presence in the region. Corruption is rife and it's evident to Nicholson that there is a criminal element that has been allowed to run rampant. He instructs to the police that without oppressing the people or worrying them in any way, you should endeavor whenever they commit any poultry crime to bring them to justice and send them to Pentridge, even on a poultry sentence, the object being to take their prestige away from them. So how exactly the police are supposed to arrest any person committing any petty crime and send them to Pentridge prison without oppressing the people is not explicitly stated. So they're kind of doing like a New York City in the 90s stop and frisk. Like, hey, are you wearing baggy jeans? We're going to search you, see if you're weed in you and put you in prison for the rest of your life. Um, sounds great. Sounds great. Um, so they're being like tough on crime. They're like the mayor and lauder and order SVU being like, we are going to be tough on crime. 
So under this new direction in Greta, the police are champing at the bit to send a Kelly to prison. In June of 1877, Jim Kelly, rest his soul, um, is sentenced to four years hard labour for cattle stealing and resisting arrest. Greta mum member Stephen Hart is sentenced to 12 months hard labour for horse stealing. So, but Ned and the rest of the mob are kind of running around horse stealing, largely unarrested. They manage to steal a few beauties directly from James Whitty himself, which they sell for a tidy 44 pounds. Um, but Ned is about to run afoul of the law on a charge other than horse stealing. And it is also a bit of a weird affair, much like his previous arrest. And also like his previous arrest, it also involves testicles. (laughs) (laughs) So in September of 1877, Nick is having a Nick. I made that up. <laughs> Ned is having a beverage one night at a hotel in Benalla with a maid of his who is actually a police officer, a constable by the name of Alexander Fitzpatrick. So Fitzpatrick is a cop, but he's also a bit of a ruffian. He's been on the wrong side of the law before and he's only been a police officer for about six months. He could have just as easily been a part of the Greta mob as a policeman. Now, Ned is not a big drinker, but this night in particular, he is sozzled. Afterwards, he would claim that his drink was spiked, which I didn't realize existed in the 1800s, but apparently it did. Um, So Ned is arrested after leaving the hotel for riding his horse on a footpath while drunk. Um, and he is, of course, arrested by none other than Constable Fitzpatrick. Even their mates, Fitzpatrick knows that he'll get big snaps for bringing in none other than Ned Kelly. So he's put in the lockup overnight, and when he awakes the next day to be taken to the courthouse, they arc, he arcs up when the police attempt to put handcuffs on him. For some re- reason, he's like, I'll go to the courthouse, but do not put handcuffs on me. So he starts to try and like resist arrest basically. So the, there are four officers there at the time. So Constable Fitzpatrick, Sergeant Whelan, who we remember before from trying to arrest Ned for that assault of the Chinese guy, uh, Constable Lonigan and Constable Day. So when they go to cuff him, Ned says, I'll go quietly, but you'll not put the derbies on me without a fight. Well, he doesn't come. I know the derbies, um, which means handcuffs, obviously. He doesn't come quietly and he knocks out two of the four troopers that are surrounding him and then he makes a run for it. So he's running like through the streets of town, like knocking pedestrians out of the way, like a scene in a movie. Um, And the pedestrians are trying to like stop him, but it's like stopping a charging bull. He runs into a bootmaker's shop, hoping, hoping to escape through the back door, but there is no back door. So he's cornered by the four cops and the shopkeeper and they just have like the scrappiest like schoolyard shit fight that you've ever seen in your life. So these five guys are trying to subdue Ned who is fighting back valiantly. I should mention that Ned is like built like a brick shit house. Like he's a big guy. He's done hard labor his whole life. All these police officers are like city boys who probably drink like lattes and alleyways and stuff like that. (laughs) So they're not really like, they're not really like Northeast Victoria's finest. Do you know what I mean? So yes, they're, they're fighting, they're fighting scrappily. So boots are flying, there's blood and helmets and shit everywhere. Uh, at one point during the fight, Ned's pants get ripped off and Constable Lonigan spies an opportunity to subdue Ned that he can't pass up. So he reaches down to Ned's groin, grabs the family jewels, squeezes and does not let go. Oh my God. So he's literally holding on to Ned by the balls while Ned is thrashing around like a bucking bull. But he's still fighting. He's still like punching people and he like kicks Constable Fitzpatrick so hard that he goes flying backwards. And all through this, Lonigan's just holding on. So <laughs> the fight has naturally attracted a fair bit of attention. 
And the person who actually goes up and breaks up the fight is the justice of the peace. So the justice of the peace actually yells at the police officers, telling them that they should be ashamed of themselves for attacking a prisoner. Um, And everything manages to calm down. The justice of the peace eventually Ned allows himself to be handcuffed by this guy and he's led to the courthouse. He yells out to Constable Lonigan, well, Lonigan, I've never shot a man yet, but if I ever do, so help me God, you'll be the first. (laughs) (laughs) He's taken to court and pleads guilty to being drunk and disorderly and a host of other charges. He's fined four pounds and six shillings, which he pays, and he leaves the courthouse an even bigger legend than when he walked in. The news spreads around town like a bushfire that it took five men to subdue Ned and he was only taken after an unsportsmanlike attack to the family jewels. The newspapers put the Greta mob on blast, calling them nothing but ruffians and horse thieves, rogues and vagabonds, burglars and bushrangers. So the feud between the mob and the police would continue to grow, but this time it was personal. So not only did Ned have the anger of this most recent injustice uh, from Constable Lonigan, but Constable Lonigan and Fitzpatrick feel humiliated by Ned's walking out of prison a hero after he gave them a thrashing of a lifetime. So another score would need to be settled. So remember before when I said that Ned stole some of James Whitty's horses and sold them for 44 pounds? Well, the person who bought them, a German man by the name of William Baumgarten, was arrested for possessing stolen horses. Oh, no. He's told the constable who arrested them that a man named Thompson had sold him the horses and that he had legitimate paperwork for them. But the W that was the Whitty brand was still visible underneath the new branding the horses had been given and Baumgarten was arrested. Not long after, a warrant was put out for Ned Kelly for the charge of horse stealing. The squatters in the area, including James Whitty, had formed a league known as the Northeastern Stock Protection League that aimed to suppress the theft of cattle in the area. It was these men who formed the complainants on the warrant for Ned Kelly. The police and the squatters believed that Ned was the man Thompson who had stolen the horses, which of course he was, but Ned wasn't going to come out and say that. Um, Ned Kelly, once he'd heard that Baumgarten was arrested, he was kind of like, oh shit, got a bounce. So he ran off and um, hightailed it out to New South Wales with Joe Byrne. But the police who were determined to catch a Kelly decided that Dan Kelly and John Lloyd were involved in the theft as well, which they weren't, and a warrant was put out for them as well. So enter again Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick. So one night he'd smashed a few beverages one night in a shanty in Winton, which is a few miles away from Greta. He heads into Greta drunk on his horse and passes the Kelly homestead. Now it had become... police procedure at the time to ensure that two constables were present during any interaction with the Kelly family. But Fitzy in this instant was feeling oh, quite confident. Cats. I'm going to have two of them. So <laughs> Fitzy gets there, he dismounts his horse and he knocks on the door to the Kelly household. So the Kelly version of events was that Fitzy entered the household to find only Ellen Kelly, her baby Alice and three of the other Kelly girls. He takes a seat inside the house but is roused by the sound of somebody chopping wood outside who goes out to have a look as there is a law that you can't cut wood on crown land and he wouldn't mind apprehending someone even if it isn't Dan Kelly. But he finds Brookie Williamson, neighbour and longtime Kelly friend, splitting fence posts and doing nothing illegal. While outside, Fitzy hears the sound of hooves and none other than Dan Kelly rides back into the property. Fitzy tells him to come to the station with him as there is a warrant for his arrest for horse stealing. Dan Kelly says, fine, but I've just had a long ride and I'd like to have some dinner first. (laughs) Constable Fitzpatrick is like, sure, dinner sounds great. And they all sit down and have dinner. So at the end of the meal, Dan tells Ellen that he's heading into town with the constable to answer the warrant. And Dan asks him 
Ellen asks him to produce the warrant, which Fitzpatrick doesn't actually have, but he has a telegram saying that there is a warrant. Um, Ellen Kelly, who has seen her fair share of the law, says, well, if you don't have a warrant, you can't take him and therefore you have no business here. So get out of my house. Fitzpatrick says, I will blow your brains out if you interfere. And Ellen Ellen replies, you would not be so ready to show that pop gun of yours if Ned were here. He would ram that revolver down your throat. Dan, looking out the window, says, there is Ned now coming along the side of the house. Fitzy takes the bait, looks out the window. Dan knocks the gun out of his hand, grabs Fitzpatrick, roughs him up a little and tells him to get off the property, which he does. Constable Fitzpatrick's version is slightly different. So much is the same up until Fitzpatrick gets inside the Kelly household for the meal with Dan. He then claims that Ellen Kelly accosted him, calling him a deceitful little bastard and telling him that he would not take Dan Kelly out of the house that night. Then who suddenly should appear but Ned Kelly himself, who came in through the front door of the homestead and shot Fitzpatrick without a word. The bullet strikes Fitzpatrick in the wrist. Then Ellen Kelly comes at him with a shovel, hitting him in his helmet clad head. Fitzpatrick goes for his revolver, but finds that Dan Kelly has taken it out of his belt. Fitzpatrick then somehow gets a hold of Ned Kelly's revolver and says, you cowardly wretch, do you want to murder me? Yes. So by now, uh, Bricky Williamson and Bill Skillian, another friend of the Kellys, are all in the house and they all have revolvers pointing at Fitzpatrick. Ned then apparently says, oh, Fitzpatrick, if I'd known it was you, I wouldn't have shot in the first place. Because he's like, but me and Ned are still pals though. Um, And then he goes to remove the bullet from Fitzpatrick's wrist with a knife. Ellen Kelly bandaged the wound, then Ned took him out of the house and made Fitzpatrick promise that he wouldn't tell anybody who shot him. Fitzy's like, sure thing, Um, but he thinks that Bill Skillian and Bricky Williamson are following him, so he puts his horse into a gallop and returns to the shanty in Winton where he'd been drinking, where the owner rebandages the wounds, gives him another beer, and helps Fitzpatrick to Benalla Police Station where he recounts the tale, disheveled, bleeding, and a little bit drunk. (laughs) So when a doctor took a look at Fitzpatrick's wounds, he noticed that there was no clear bullet wound. And then in his opinion, it didn't seem like there was enough damage for a close range shot to the wrist, as Fitzpatrick claimed. The real truth of what happened that night in the Kelly household will never be definitively known. We'll never know. There's those two stories. There's about a million other versions that have come out. There's one that says, and this is, I believe this is the tale in the Ned Kelly movie with Heath Ledger that Fitzpatrick cracked on to Ned's sister Kate. And that's why Ned shot him and all these other things. Regardless of who cares about the truth, regardless of the truth, um, the word was put out that a police officer was shot and wounded by Ned Kelly when the officer was attempting to arrest Dan Kelly. Warrants are also put out for the arrest of Ellen Kelly, Dan Kelly, Bill Skillian and Bricky Williamson for aiding and abetting Ned. To the Kelly supporters, the charge is ludicrous. Ned Kelly, literal brick shithouse who had needed four cops and a shopkeeper to take him down only a few months previously, suddenly needed a gun. He'd never shot anybody before. He was not known for using weapons. So suddenly he's like, I'm going to come into my house and randomly shoot this guy who I know while my three sisters and a baby are in the house. Um, And he also shot Fitzpatrick three times and twice he missed, even though he was known to be like, he said that like he could shoot a kangaroo from a hundred miles away and shit like that. Like everybody was like, "Mm, this seems suspicious. So basically everybody believed the charges were trumped up except for the police who were absolutely thrilled to have Kelly on such a serious charge as wounding with intent to kill. Um, Bricky Williamson is arrested as is Bill Skillian although it would later turn out it wasn't actually Bill at the homestead that night but Joe Byrne 
Ellen Kelly is arrested as well, and she is taken to Benalla Station with her baby Alice in hand. When Ned Kelly finds out that his mother and baby sister are in prison for charges of aiding and abetting attempted murder, he is furious and also feels incredibly guilty. The whole episode only happened because Dan was wanted for a crime that Ned had orchestrated that Dan had had no part in. So Ellen was put up for bail because she had a baby with her, but the justice presiding wanted two 50-pound sureties. The price was shocking, but not that shocking because the judge who sentenced her was none other than the squatter Robert McBean, who still wanted revenge on the Ned Kelly, the Kelly family after Ned and Harry Power had robbed him all those years ago. The, the Kellys didn't have one pound, let alone 100, but the surety was paid by two kindly farmers and Ellen at least was able to wait at the homestead for trial. So Ned is now a wanted man, big time styles, with posters with his face hanging all over northeastern Victoria and a hundred pound reward for anyone with information leading to his capture. Ned, Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne hide out in this little place called Bullet Creek where years earlier they had built a cabin and some fencing and space for cattle to graze. They wait there, stealing the odd bit of cattle and gathering gold from the creek to send money back to Greta for Ellen's legal defence. They are helped out by their network of supporters who give them supplies and bit of cash and information regarding the trial. Ned is sure that Ellen will be found innocent and that the whole case will fall apart when it is proven that Bill Skillian was never even at the Kelly house the night in question. So they're in hiding. Enormous police resources are being used to capture the Kellys. They are the most wanted people in Victoria. Um, the police have many like schemes that they try to cook up to catch the Kellys. They try to use wild Wild right as bait to find Ned and report back, but Wild says that he would not betray Ned for all the money in Australia. Um, so Stephen Hart, who is a member of the Greta mob, had recently been released from prison, and through the Bush Telegraph of supporters, he f- gets word that Ned, Dan, and Joe are hiding out in Bullet Creek, and they want him to join them. So it's here in this little hideout that the Kelly gang is formed. So on the 9th of October, 1878, Bricky, Bill and Ellen Kelly's trial is underway. Um, The defense gives it a red hot crack. Uh, John Bauman, the lawyer, questions the doctor who examined Fitzpatrick's wrist extensively about whether or not the injury was indeed from a bullet. But the testimony of Constable Fitzpatrick is overwhelming. Ned's conviction that the whole case would fall apart when it was proven that Bill Skillian wasn't present was not to be as the two witnesses that testified to Bill's whereabouts that night were proven by the Crown to be Kelly sympathizers who had purchased horses off Ned in the past, i.e. they'd bought stolen goods, so don't really trust him. So despite the fact that there was only Fitzpatrick's drunken account of what went down that night, all three were found guilty. Bill and Bricky are given six years hard labor. Ellen, and by extension her baby Alice, is given three. The judge says to Ellen while she is being sentenced that if your son Ned was standing by you in the dock, I would give him 21 years. So the rage that Ned had felt basically his whole life, that the police had it out for him and his family and that they had been found guilty of crimes they'd never committed and punished unjustly for the ones they had committed, burns hotter than ever when he finds out the punishment his mother has been handed. He is determined that there will be revenge. So word reaches the hideout at Bullet Creek from one of the Kelly sympathizers that a party of police officers would be setting out with the intention of capturing Ned and Dan. This doesn't surprise Ned and the gang makes no move to flee. In the time that they've been waiting for the trial to start, they've set out their hideout perfectly to benefit them in case of an ambush. They've cleared the land around the cabin so they can see anybody coming from a hundred yards. The walls of the cabin are thick and reinforced. They have little holes in them that they can stick a gun out of. 
And no one other than the gang and a few of the sympathizers actually know definitively where the Kellys are. So Ned's like, let them come. So the police party is made up of Sergeant Michael Kennedy, pause for suspense, Constable Michael Scanlon, Constable Thomas McIntyre, and none other than Constable Thomas Lonigan, the man who grabbed Ned Kelly by the balls. <laughs> so he's part of the police party because they need somebody who can recognize Ned on site. And he's like, well, I can really tell you what his balls are. I like. know what they feel like. I can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Ned. <laughs> Lonigan's not thrilled to be part of the team um, because he knows what Ned Kelly is capable of. Um, so he's like, okay, so hold on. There's four police officers and we are going into the bush where Ned Kelly is hiding with his four friends. And last time it took four police officers and a shopkeeper and a justice of the peace to even bring him down. He's like, the odds are not in our favour. But the party moves out from Mansfield on the 25th of October, 1878. Um, At the same time, another police party was dispatched from Greta, but they don't do anything important, so I'm not going to refer to them ever again. Um, So they are searching up and down the King River and the Wombat Ranges. This is like rough, like thick Australian bush outback. The police officers who I said, latte, drinking, whatever's, they... You know, they have like scouting and tracking and stuff experience, but like Ned and Dan and all the rest of them like raised in the bush. Like they've spent their entire life. They know how to survive out there. Um, uh, The police officers are dressed in disguise as prospectors. So nobody who witnesses them can raise the alarm and spread it to the Kelly gang. So after a few days trekking in the bush, um, Scanlon and Kennedy have gone off on their own in search of the Kelly as well. McIntyre and Lonigan. Uh, holding the fort at their makeshift camp near Stringy Bark Creek. So one night, um, hearing a noise in the bush, McIntyre heads off hoping for a kangaroo or something that he can eat for dinner. Instead, he finds a pair of parrots and he shoots the parrots. The shot cracks out, reverberates around the dense bush. Sound travels a little over a mile away, directly to the Kelly camp in Bullock Creek. So instantly, they're on the alert. Ned and Dan set out to investigate and they spy the troopers' camp. They return to Bullock Creek to alert Joe and Steve, and the gang take some time to formulate a plan. They know that they will have the element of surprise, so they go out to bail up the troopers um, with the intent of, like, A, telling them to fuck off and B, stealing all their guns and ammunition because the Kelly gang actually doesn't have that much, like, stuff because they're, like, homeless in the bush. So they are like, we will rough these cops up, but also we want their stuff and we want it bad. (laughs) Um, they locate the camp quite easily as McIntyre and Lonigan have set up a huge bonfire and they literally just follow the smoke. So they sneak up on the police camp. McIntyre and Lonigan are sitting by the fire, literally waiting for the billy to boil like a folk song. Um, after observing them for quite some time, waiting for the sun to set a little further, Ned makes this move. He marches into the camp, weapon raised and orders the troopers to bail up. At first, McIntyre thinks it's Kennedy and Scanlon coming back from scouting and pulling a funneled prank. So McIntyre like puts his hand up, but Lonigan leaps up, grabs his weapon and turns to take cover behind the log. No sooner does he turn his revolver to Ned that Ned shoots him, clipping him straight in the left eye. Lonigan cries, oh Christ, I'm shot. (laughs) (laughs) Like every other time. Like every, all these people are just like narrating what's going on to them as they die. I'm shot, I'm shot. I'm shot, I'm shot. Um, So he collapses, bleeding and convulsing. It's quite horrible, honestly. 
Um, Ned yells at McIntyre to keep his hands up, which McIntyre does. The other members of the Kelly gang search the encampment for weapons and for the two other troopers. Um, Ned asks where they are, to which McIntyre replies that they are out and expected back before dusk. Dan wants to handcuff McIntyre, but Ned's like, well, he's surrendered, so we don't really need to go that far. We'll just keep our guns pointing on him at all times. Um, Ned goes to inspect the man he shot, and he's surprised when McIntyre informs him that it was Tom Lonigan. If you recall 48 years ago when we were talking about it, Lonigan, Ned said, I'd never shot a man yet, but Christ, Lonigan, you'll be the first. And he was and indeed. he was the first. He was the first. When he realises that it's Tom Lonigan, he's like, oh, I feel bad, but also I'm glad for that fellow once gave me a hiding in Benalla. Dan Kelly says he will lock no more of us poor buggers up, which I thought was poetic, but also kind of mean because you just killed him. Um, Scanlon and Kennedy have still not returned. So the Kelly gang essentially gather around the campfire with McIntyre. They're like looking at all the weapons they've collected from the camp. Um, Ned is a little bit surprised that the troopers are so well armed. They have like a ton of guns. I didn't even bother listening to them because I didn't understand what any of them were. Um, but they got a lot of guns and he's like to McIntyre. So you guys were going to come out here and kill me. And McIntyre is like, uh, 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 we came out here to apprehend you with force if necessary. Um, so while they're waiting for Scanlon and Kennedy to return, they essentially like just sit around the campfire and chat with McIntyre. Like uh, Joe Byrne puts a kettle on, they have some tea, they share a pipe and they're just like chatting about stuff. Um, Mac is like having a wee chat with the Kellys, but he's also trying to remember information about all of them. So if he escapes, he can let everybody know. Everybody knows who Ned Kelly is and basically what he looks like. Dan Kelly, they've got a fair idea. Stephen Hart and Joe Byrne, they're like, who are these guys? <laughs> they don't really know who he is. Um, Mac tries to like bond with Ned Kelly and is like, oh, so we are both Irish Catholics from Ireland and stuff. And Ned's like, I'm Australian. You're Irish. Fuck off. No bonding. No bonding accepted. Um, Ned asks him information about the two other troopers and McIntyre says that if he plans on shooting Scanlon and Kennedy on their return, he'd rather be shot than give Ned any information about them. Ned says that he won't shoot any man that surrenders to him. So after a bit more chatter and threats, Ned hears the distant sound of approaching horses. Steve Hart hides in one of the troopers' tents. Dan and Joe hide in the tall grass and Ned hides behind the log by the campfire next to Lonigan's corpse um he tells mcintyre not to give any indication that the gang is there or he'll shoot him the troopers ride in they tell mcintyre about their lack of success in finding the kelly gang and mcintyre tells them in a kind of upbeat way to be cautious because the camp is surrounded kennedy again thinks that he's joking which i think is just wild considering these police officers are out in the bush trying to find the kelly gang and every time they're like haha must be a joke <laughs> No, no, you're literally surrounded by the Kelly gang. So Kennedy thinks that he's joking and he puts his hand on his revolver as if he's about to take it out and shoot an imaginary assailant. As soon as he touches the revolver, Ned fires, not at Kennedy, but by him. So the troopers know that it's no joke. He tells the troopers to bail up, but they will not surrender. And a shootout occurs. So Kennedy uses his horse as a shield as shot rain, shots rain down on him. Scanlon's terrified horse won't turn, riding instead towards the danger. So Scanlon uses his shotgun to unit Ned and he misses, but Ned returns fire, clipping Scanlon on the shoulder. He falls off his horse. He tries to stand up, but falls again, collapsing onto all fours. Joe Byrne shoots him and he falls once more. 
Kennedy takes a shot at Dan Kelly and grazes him. As the gunfight is occurring, McIntyre sees an opportunity and grabs Kennedy's horse. At first it bucks, but McIntyre holds on and he gallops off. Dan Kelly... Dan Kelly calls out, shoot the bugger, and McIntyre is shot at by someone, but not by Ned. He kept his promise to not shoot at any man who surrendered to him. McIntyre is now off, racing into the bush. Kennedy is still taking cracks at the Kelly gang, but with McIntyre off, he's alone, hiding behind a tree, with four heavily armed bushrangers firing at him. Kennedy takes off with Ned in lone pursuit. So he's crashing through the woods, sending shots back like over his shoulder, essentially, towards Ned. Ned knows that Kennedy only has six bullets in his revolver, so he's essentially waiting for Kennedy to run out. He hides behind a tree and waits for Ned to approach. When he does, he jumps out, fires his gun, and the bullet grazes Ned's ribs. Ned fires back, striking Kennedy under the right armpit, but Kennedy keeps running, bleeding and exhausted, until he realises that he won't get away from Ned. Kennedy stops. He drops his revolver and begins to put his arm up. In the darkness, Ned can't see that Kennedy has dropped his rifle. He fires, hitting Kennedy straight in the chest. Kennedy falls. As Ned comes up to Kennedy, he is horrified to see Kennedy's rifle on the ground. He stands over the dying trooper. With his last breaths, Kennedy tells Ned about his wife, about his five children, and about the 11-month-old son that had died and been buried not long before Kennedy had gone off in pursuit of the Kelly gang. Kelly says to Kennedy, Well, Kennedy, I am sorry I have shot you. Take my gun now and shoot me. Kennedy refuses and said he forgives Ned. He takes out a notebook and pencil and writes a note imploring Kelly to give it to Kennedy's wife, which Ned promises to do so. To Ned's great distress, Kennedy is spluttering, gasping for breath and is obviously in terrible pain. Ned says to him that he needs to leave but can't leave Kennedy in pain. He takes his shotgun and shoots the dying man, putting him out of his misery. Ned is like, boy, did I feel bad. Boy, did I feel shit about shooting this guy. This was the worst moment of my life. He still fully robs Kennedy's dead body. Of course. Um, And he takes his gold watch, a little bit of money that he had, and two photos of Ned himself. He takes off the trooper's coat and lays it over his body to protect it from animals. So Ned would later call Sergeant Kennedy the bravest man he had ever heard of. Even though three people were dead, Ned didn't consider himself a murderer. He said, this cannot be called willful murder for I was compelled to shoot them or lie down like a cur and die. So prior to this point, the Kelly gang had been like small time horse thieves, bushrangers, Robin Hood kind of types who believed that they were doing the right thing by taking on an unjust police force. Now they were murderers. Three policemen lay dead in the dense bush near Stringy Bark Creek and the Kelly gang would have no chance for their crime to go unheard of because as that very moment, as they went back to their cabin, McIntyre was riding off into the bush, making his way terrified, believing that the bushrangers were stalking him. He emerges from the bush onto the property of a man named John McColl, ragged and bleeding, crying murder. The alarm is raised in Mansfield, then in Benalla, then a notice is put in the paper. Soon, everyone in the Northeast knows that the fearsome Kelly gang have brutally murdered three police officers. Ned Kelly has gone overnight from a moderately well-known petty criminal and small-time folk hero to one of the most fearsome wild men in Victoria. And if you want to know what happens next, you're going to have to listen to part two. Stunning work, Ellen. Any thoughts on Ned Kelly? As we sit now. Look, I'm, I don't know what it is. Like, cause generally, I don't know. I mean, he just, sure. Like he obviously was 
getting picked on <laughs> by police officers and stuff like that. Picked on. Well, you know, to put that lightly. I, th- I believe they call it persecution. Persecution by local law enforcement. So I can understand the anger. Mm. And especially with his mother getting arrested. Like I think that's, that's bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, sounds like a guy that I wouldn't want to mess with. And also no. I'd be interested if he was alive today. What was it? What would his Tinder profile look like? Ned Kelly was hot. Um, Ned Kelly was so hot. Ned Kelly looks like a your, Melbourne hipster. It's like, very much your type. Ned Kelly's hot. I'll cop it. <laughs> Gee, Jess is looking at me so judgmentally. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I'm looking at you the way I look at you when you say, oh, that guy's hot. And then I turn around and I look at that guy and I'm like, Jess likes exactly one type of guy and they all look like they work in IT. <laughs> Or science teachers. Or science teachers. <laughs> but like science teachers who like got into science for the love of it and now hate their job because they hate kids. Anyway, Ned Kelly, that was part one. Part two will come out once I finish reading the 800-page book that I read. Who this. wrote it? Peter Fitzsimmons. Sounds like the type of guy that would write a Ned Kelly book. I think the thing – so I don't I, – I would we have learned about Ned Kelly in primary school. Yes. Ish. I can't remember. Um, I remember the he- the bits of the Heath Ledger movie because Jeffrey Rush plays the the copper. And Orlando Bloom is in it. That's right. Orlando Bloom plays Joe Byrne, who is known to be quite handsome. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, I've read an awful lot of stuff about the Kellys in the past month. Mm. Um, and I know that Mick Jagger played Ned Kelly. He did in a movie in the 70s, I believe. Apparently he did a fairly okay job. Ned Kelly was also the subject of the first ever um, dramatic motion picture film. Ah, interesting. I'm keen to hear part two. Yes, I'm keen to speak part two. Hopefully I have less of a lisp. Yeah, I, it really came out. Yeah, I could, I could hear it. I could hear it in my headphones and I was like, you sound like a four-year-old who has just gotten their two front teeth. Stunning. But sorry. We'll, we'll leave that there. That was a long one. It was long and sorry, guys. I don't know how to. I don't know how to trim it. She's a long-winded gal. Yep. Um, There's a lot of stuff. There is a lot of stuff. And do you know the thing that is terrifying about Ned Kelly is that people are so fucking passionate about Ned Kelly that if you say something wrong, which I know I did, they will find you and kill you. The I remember going to the Rosalie markets and seeing like you know those wall hangings that people have. Yes. Of Ned Kelly, and there was a quote you said that I think I saw printed on one of them. Yeah. I just find that bizarre. I find, because I know people have a lot of problems with, you know, glorifying criminals. Yeah. Such as so many people picking a fight with me about the Ted Bundy thing. I just don't understand glorifying Ned Kelly. I think the thing with Ned Kelly, and we can talk about it more in the next episode when his kind of more famous exploits are discussed, is that A, he was kind of a gentleman, and people like that about him. B, there is the Robin Hood, like, rich, poor thing. Yeah. And C, Australians love criminals and we love, like, a just criminal as well. Like, because I think because of our convict history. Convict history, yeah. We, and because the crimes are so stupid. Yeah, like, the cattle and You the can't horses. help but feel sympathy for somebody that was sent to prison forever for stealing a pig. You know what I mean? Mm. And, like, as we've said, you know, in past episodes, Australia – we have some amazing police officers, but we have had a historic problem with police corruption. Mm. And, you know, I hope that I emphasize 
that in this episode. There was a whole bunch of stuff. If you think it was long, you should see all the stuff that I left the fuck out. Um, you know, when you're talking about criminals and a just police force that are doing their best to keep crime, you know, contained and like everything is done right and people aren't getting paid off. Like, yeah, don't justify criminals when somebody is being persecuted by the police, whether and people, some people are like, it's bullshit. He was a criminal. He wasn't actually getting persecuted. He committed all those crimes, which is absolutely a stance to take. Um, I don't know. It's hard to feel, it's hard to feel terrible for glorifying a criminal when the police were kind of a lots of times just as bad. And in fact, there were parts from the book that I've read. I'll try and put some of this information in the next one if people want facts. But they said that, you know, a lot of the local policemen participated in cattle stealing and stuff as Mm. well. So on one hand, you know, your mate, constable, whatever, is stealing horses and getting drunk with you in the bar. The next they're getting paid 10 pounds by a squatter for sending you to prison for the same crime. I have to say the Kennedy story was quite touching. Yeah, it was quite touching. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Make um, sure you're subscribed. Yes, subscribe, rate, review, click the bell to get notified. With this, like we're YouTubers. We're YouTubers. Um, make sure if you would like to be a patron, please click that Patreon link. Donate some money to help us fund this podcast. It's basically the funds are going towards research because books, w- newspaper subscriptions. Books, yeah, those kinds the of things. Bloody Courier Mail. If you want to look up an article. The Australian is $18 a month. Yeah. So who has $18? Help, help me. Please. Please help. Or don't. It's your or choice. Or don't. It's your choice. But keep listening. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbours. Tell your pets about it. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Goodbye. The Disney vs. Disney Debates podcast is all about finding the answer to one simple question. What is the best Disney movie of all time? Maybe the question isn't that simple. So join us every Saturday as hosts from all across That's Not Canon fight for their movies in one-on-one debates moderated by me, Zane C. Weber. In order to decide once and for all which of Disney's beloved classics or recent hits will take the crown. Save it for the show. Available now on Spotify, iTunes and wherever you find podcasts. That's not kind of productions podcast. The Home Depot introduces new James Hardy Hardy Backer Cement Board with Hydro Defense Technology. 100% waterproof, it's the ultimate barrier to moisture. Now you can skip the steps of waterproofing the entire board, just the joints and fasteners, and you're done. If you're a pro with a bathroom to tile and no time to waste, we've got your backer. New Hardy Backer with Hydro Defense Technology. In store, online. Now at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Passes ANSI A118.10 waterproof test. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.